Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hey everyone, Logan with Sweetfish here. As you may already know, we've had the hashtag agency series running for a while now here on B2B Growth. Over the next several weeks, you'll be able to listen in to select episodes of The Innovative Agency hosted by Sharon Torek as she leads conversations with agency leaders about how their teams are staying on the cutting edge of marketing trends, how they're adapting their businesses to meet new challenges, and a whole lot more. All right, let's get into the episode. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of the Innovative Agency. It's Sharon Torek here again with you today. And I'm excited about something that probably most of you are going to groan about when I say it, and that's a conversation about ROI. That's right, ROI, return on investment. Probably three letters put together that most agency owners I talk with despise or get super excited about, depending upon your philosophy. And I'm really looking forward to sort of peeling back this onion of the whole issue of return on investment and how you have that conversation around it with your clients, your prospects, your teams, all of that. And to do that, I'm really happy to introduce my guest today, who is Mike Crass. And Mike is a co-founder of MKG Marketing down uh, in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I think one other city, I believe. Uh, welcome, Mike, to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sharon. And we are actually in seven different states, so we're uh, we're kind of all over the place. <laughs> got it. Got it. Yeah, I love New Orleans. It's and and, and I, I'm um, I'm a Clevelander um, by birth, and so it's very different. But actually, spent some time out there last year in the summertime which is probably not the best time to go for somebody who doesn't like heat and humidity. But I love the city, great people, and great food for sure. So let's talk about, first of all, tell us a little bit about MKG and sort of your your founding story of the agency and, and what you did leading up to being an agency owner. Sure. So what I did before we founded MKG was I worked at ad agencies on the West Coast of the United States, uh, specifically in Los Angeles and Seattle. And I was in a number of different roles. They were focused on really, you know, analytics, uh, the ones and zeros, a lot of the technical instrumentation, as well as paid media planning and, and strategy. So that's what took me from Seattle, where I grew up, down to Los Angeles and back to Seattle, met my business partner, Carrie. She was actually hired to be my boss in the agency in Seattle. And really, we, we just hit it off. We were both very analytical. We like ones and zeros. We lean into spreadsheets. I can hear a couple of creative studio heads just groaning right now like, oh, God, you're one of them. It's so it, unusual in this industry. So that, that, that is very interesting. Yeah, and and I am proud to say I am one of them. <laughs> Got it. So uh, you know, our our founding story was it came out of a, a client project at that agency in Seattle, and we 
we had this huge global campaign. All their different regions pitched money in. And, you know, they, they had big expectations. And it was a seven-figure you know, media campaign over the holidays for a consumer brand. And we got to the end of this campaign. And if I have to recall, I think I was 23 years old at this point. Mm-hmm. And so we've got people dialed in from all over the world. And they all dial in. And I can, I'm comfortable saying this with, you know, my German heritage. The gentleman who was calling in, the, the country head from Germany, listened to our whole spiel. We were so proud. We were showing all these, you know, ones and zeros and numbers. But the number we didn't show was sales because it actually wasn't possible for them to track because um, we were driving everything to, you know, the Best Buys or other target type people of the world. Um, they're different partners. And so he listened very politely. And then at the end, he looked at all of us and he said, what did we actually get here? Why did I give you so much money? And I'm not feeling like I got anything. Sure, people saw ads. Sure, people clicked on them and went to our website. What I'm hearing you say is, you have no idea how much product you sold, do you? (laughs) And that was a pretty uncomfortable conversation for a 23-year-old who doesn't speak German, isn't used to working with Germans. He basically opened the floodgates. So then... You know, the Chinese country head jumped in and was like, yeah, I'm kind of thinking the same thing. But what did I get, you know? Yeah, this is is a conversation every agency owner fears. Uh, I don't care if they admit it or not. Every agency owner fears this question to some degree. So go ahead. Just talk about what happened next. Uh, Well, we didn't have an answer, which didn't make them any happier. (laughs) Right, right, right. And so subsequently, you know, Carrie, my business partner, um, her and I looked at each other. We did a little bit of an internal postmortem of how the heck did that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we realized we never wanted that to happen again. So that, that's really where this idea of starting MKG sprouted in our brains. We thought, man, how could we control that to never happen again? Mm-hmm. And, I, and we literally said never, which is <laughs> in hindsight, mm-hmm. it's not possible to never have that conversation. But we said, you know, if we were in control of this department, we might we might be able to steer our plans in certain directions that make it very difficult for that to happen again. And so we had uh, we had approached the department head and they listened very politely. And then they very politely reminded us that, hey, this is a creative first agency. It's a creative studio. That's what everyone knows us as. We happen to do a lot of those ones and zeros because it's more a mechanism to deliver creative. Mm-hmm, right. So I, I love your initiative. You've clearly thought through this plan. It's just not going to happen here. And they didn't say the words no. They just said, you know, thanks for playing. And it's not going to happen. So we, we started the agency and we said you know, our, our first tagline, um, which Again, making uh, the creative types listening grown. We have no experience with like building taglines and building brands. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the fact that we had our own tagline was pretty, pretty special. Um, yeah, right, right, right. Good, good, good attempt. Yeah, I think that the tagline was measurable media, and so we wanted to make sure that we never had that really hard discussion again. Um, and so that's where MKG originally came from. And today, like I mentioned, we've got team members. We're still a small agency. We have team members in seven different states. And we work primarily with technology and healthcare brands and the 
the tagline or our niche that we talk about today is we help them grow big. Mm-hmm. We're not in the business of helping them grow a couple points a year. Unless they're a multi-billion dollar business, then a few percentage points is a big deal. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. We are working with businesses that are trying to grow by 25, 50, 100%, 2x, 3x. We've heard numbers as high as 4x from some of our clients. Not that we're responsible for all that growth, but they just want us to be aware of, hey, you, you happen to do digital marketing for you know technology brands like us or healthcare brands like us, but we are going to grow big. And you need to be a part of that. You need to kind of strap your seatbelt in and, and help us in the process. So that's what we do. We're, we're uh, not a full service agency. We focus on digital advertising, SEO, and analytics for technology and healthcare brands. And, and the type of brands that are hiring us are looking to grow pretty explosively. And, and they want us to be on board and helping them in the process. Do you... I, I, I love this as... as- the lead or sort of the defining purpose of your experience founding your current agency, because it's very clear to express, it's measurable, and it doesn't lend itself to a lot of wiggle room, which is a brave thing to do, right? Because the data says what it says. Now you can choose which, what to measure, right? But you've got to decide in advance, I'm assuming, with your clients' consent and input about what those metrics are going to be um, so that you know what you're going to be measured against um, once you start working with them. So I love the specificness of it. And I love the, the bravery of leading with, we're all about us tallying up the scores and seeing how we did. Because I think that's a harder conversation for an agency that is either creatively focused or brand building focused. Some of those types of things that are are hard to put um, zeros and ones behind measuring, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I'm starting to see more of with agencies. I kind of see the same types of language from agencies, which when you're trying to stand out, is not great to see similar language. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. But ultimately, it was us planting our flag and saying, for example, on the technology side, on average, clients invest a dollar in our services and we generate $10 in sales pipeline back to them. So it's not sales, but it's leads that turn into proposals that are sent by a salesperson. And so that's something that is really attractive uh, to the types of clients that we work with. And it's also a bit of a, a barrier to entry Uh, for lack of a better term, for clients who aren't interested in that. If you are not interested in measuring all the way down to sales pipeline and then actual sales, um, you're not really a great client for us because that's the language that we're going to talk about. So if you're uncomfortable with that, for whatever reason, I'm not not judging, just saying if you're uncomfortable, that's not interesting or attractive to you. We can we can part ways as friends and be, you know, colleagues in the industry, but we we really don't need to work together. Right. Did you make a conscious decision as an agency to focus on the client verticals that you did because you felt they were more likely to be data or ROI focused um, when they were looking for a partner? We did. And, and starting on the, the technology side, I'm doing air quotes because um, technology can really be Yeah, Our technology practices everything from 
uh, working with clients that are selling routers, Wi-Fi systems, home automation, networking, you know, data-oriented companies, big data companies. For them, we focused on them first, actually, even before healthcare, because they all want to know ones and zeros. Well, while they're interested in brand building, if you are a B2B technology company, at some point, a couple things have to happen for you to grow. You have to, number one, have an extremely, extremely competent um, sales leader. Whatever his or her title is, doesn't matter. You've got to be focused on a sales leader that can hire middle management and then bring in that lower level of sales folks, which are like SDRs or ADRs or a whole bunch of different acronyms for that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's usually, to be frank, a technology company, as they're scaling, will hire salespeople faster than marketing and they'll hire more of them. And a great example is like Zoom video conferencing. They, they IPO'd last year. They had a tremendously successful initial public offering and they're still going strong. We're a Zoom customer. Uh, we were in their office in September of last year, just chatting with them. And I believe their marketing department today, right? They're a publicly traded company. Their marketing department is, I don't remember the exact number, but it's definitely less than 50. And I'd probably put it at around 25. Mm-hmm. Wow. In, in September, the day before we walked in their office, they had just hired their 1,000 salesperson. Oh, my and goodness. Just to show you orders of magnitude, they literally have 2% the number of marketing people as sales. So kind of coming back to your question why we focus on a vertical, we want to talk about outcomes. So that means if you are a marketing person at a company that sells technology to other businesses, you have to talk in sales. It's not, it's not allowed to not. So we really just gelled with those kind of people. And the more we talked, they were like, man, we really like you know, your methodology and what you're talking about. We're not seeing this from a lot of people. Um, and they also understand that there's, for most technology brands, unless it's a, you know, a subscription business like a SaaS company, there's right. usually a huge pot of gold at the end of each sales rainbow. So it's not like they're going to go through a 9-month or 12-month or even a 15-month sales cycle and sell something for $4,000. They're going to yeah. sell for $400,000 or $4 million. Um, and then kind of talking about healthcare, we were really attracted to healthcare businesses because you might not get a $4 million sale immediately. Although one of our clients sits in a life sciences business that does rare disease treatments, actually does a seven-figure treatment that they sell, that they provide. With healthcare, it's more the lifetime value of that patient. You know, If you say you're a hospital and you're taking care of taking care of my wife, Jen, that's, that's her name. Who do you think that Mike is going to go to when he needs to be taken care of, whether it's, uh, you know, just basic medical needs, a, a checkup, a physical, whatever, all the way up to, you know, serious emergency medicine or terminal illness. So with, the, with healthcare brands, it's a little harder to track because they don't have the same marketing technology stack like a tech company would, Right. which tech companies generally go, You've got your marketing metrics, so like whatever you see out of Facebook ads. Then you've got a marketing automation platform such as Marketo, Pardot, whatever. And then you shove all that data into sales CRM like Salesforce or HubSpot. Unfortunately, healthcare doesn't have that same stack set up, but they are starting to have some more end-to-end tracking with the different bits of their, their marketing and technology stack. So for us, it's really rewarding to be able to say... Um, again, for that life sciences business, a single getting a single new patient pays for our service many times over in a year. 
we're usually not that fortunate. It's usually like, okay, we bring Mike in and he's going to see the doctor for a few years. And Mike's wife, Jen, starts coming in. And then Sharon asks where, you know, where do you guys go to the, to the doctor? And all of a sudden she starts going. So we're, we're looking to be able to tell a story powered by these different bits of technology that says, okay, you're going to spend X on MKG. Our goal is to make Y bigger than X. And that, that Y should continue to grow over time. Um, so that's why we're really attracted to those two industries. You know, long sales cycles, really valuable customers or patients um, on the healthcare side, and um, a clear need also. Uh, not, not to marginalize uh, the Banana Republic shirt that I'm wearing right now, but I didn't need a Banana Republic shirt. I could have bought a shirt from pretty much anywhere in work. work, right. work. <laughs> well, and I also think that there are industries that lend themselves to a lot of um, interim benchmarking, which a data-focused agency is is well equipped to do, right? Because you are you're constantly measuring, and it's it's baked into the way you deliver the value that you deliver, and so you're selling, helping your clients create. Bigger ticket relationships or bigger ticket sales, to, you know, but pick your phraseology depending on the industry. Right. But you are helping them measure along the way whether they're headed in the right direction and on the right path. Yeah, along the way. And, it, and when it comes to our services and fees, it ends up being a fairly binary conversation. When, mm-hmm. when I'm calling you or Andre, who's our, our sales leader here in MKG, when myself or Andre are calling a client about a renewal, we should have really good idea around how likely we are to renew. Are we going to get more work from them? Are they going to reduce the work? Are they just going to terminate the relationship at the end of the current contract? You know, we, we it's a pretty binary conversation and that I've seen in other agencies can be uncomfortable. You, I see other agencies um, and I'm painting with a broad brush here. Yeah. Other agencies sometimes they want to talk more in, in feel, right? How does this feel? How does this relationship feel? How is the work, right? That's, again, air quotes. That's like a, a noun, the work. How is the work? Right. Um, how do you feel the work is going? How do you feel the working process is going? And, and ultimately, what I always said in the early days of our company is, I cannot pay people to work here based on feelings. Yes. Eventually, they're going to leave because they're not able to turn around to J.P. Morgan Chase or whoever holds their mortgage <laughs> and say, I'm going to give you 10 feelings instead of my mortgage payment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> you don't understand. They really liked our work. It really felt good to the client. They just didn't pay for it. Yeah. Well, yeah, whether spent work or whether the relationship just ended. And, and I think for us, it, it, it is truly confusing. If we are delivering a the metrics we agreed to as a group, not just what we told you, but you you weighed in on them. You agreed as a client. We, we got consensus. That was communicated up the chain of command to leadership. It's truly confusing if we're doing really well for somebody and we don't get renewed. Because oh. like, okay, that basically means that all of that was lip service and we didn't have that. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the most vexing things for agencies well, the, the new business question in general, I mean, p- keeping pipelines full, closing deals, making the right matches with the right clients. It's how every agency owner who I personally know or who I personally work with um, spends a lot of their 
their day, their, their months or years consumed with. But if you can use the data that you are and, and the benchmarks that you are gathering along the way, it takes so much guesswork out of the equation when it comes time to talk about whether you're going to maintain or move on from maintain the relationship or move on from each other as a client and an agency, right? And agencies spend so much of their time just trying to keep the business they already have in some cases. And your approach seems to me to eliminate so much of that variableness because like you said, you should be able to predict a lot earlier than on renewal of your agreement or whether or not you're delivering on what the parties agreed you would deliver. And so um, if they're not renewing, you know, some intervening circumstances occurred or, you know, some it's, it's a surprise for unrelated reasons, but you're, you're definitely blunting that variable down to zero in most cases. So, so, you know, and so you can plan. And so you're spending less money trying to maintain the work that you already have. Yeah. And I, I like that the word you use, you know, blunting it down it and using the word vaccine confusing. I mean, it, it's really, if we're not getting renewed, there's a problem there. And yeah. I will say it's not all about the numbers, right? If, if you don't work well with somebody or they, they would prefer or maybe thrive, a client would thrive with a different uh, lead stakeholder, whether it's an account person or you know a contributor or whatever at your agency. All those feelings still matter a lot. Right. But you, you can work through not so uh, you know, ooey-gooey Valentine's Day feelings. I can't work through and renew a client who are actually not helping them sell anything. Right. It's not possible in my experience if you're not selling anything, but they love working with you. What you will hear is, we have really enjoyed working with you. This is not working out. Yeah. 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 So stay in touch, but please, you know, we, we were, we're going a different direction. Right. Peace. We'll see you maybe at the Addy Awards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to talk, you know, speaking of, I wanted to sort of talk with you a little bit about your your client vetting and discovery process, because, you know, not only are you really diligent about looking at the numbers just very plainly throughout the engagement, but you do a lot of upfront work and it's metrics focused as well on vetting a client in the first place. You have a discovery and onboarding process that is Somewhat democratic, although that's probably an overbroad term um, mm-hmm. because you are the owner, and you know I'm, I've got to assume that you can reverse or override any decisions you're not comfortable with. But talk talk a little bit about how you are um, vetting um, and handling discovery with new potential clients, including your scorecarding process. Yes, so we we've recently in the past year discovered scorecards, had heard a lot about them from other agency owners and even other businesses. Uh, And the the purpose of a scorecard is just to figure out numerically a a difficult question, right? Should we, a difficult question might be, should we work with this client or not? The answers are yes or no, but actually getting to yes or no is a very difficult thing to sort through. And so what we used to do when we were a smaller agency is we would uh, before we send a proposal to a client, we would 
review every single you know new prospect with the entire team. We would talk about it. We would kind of brief the team, do Q and A, and then we would vote. So that that was a very you know by the book literal uh, democratic process. Mm-hmm. You can imagine you've got your little primaries on CNN or Fox or whatever station you watch, and then you move all the way down to voting. And we we found that that was incredibly important that we would get 100% yes votes. It had to be unanimous. And part of that came from, you know, I worked on the West Coast for ad agencies. Carrie, my business partner, is from the Northeast. So she was in New York um, at some major holding companies working for big agencies there. And what we would find is that working in those worlds, you basically got this client tossed on your lap on a Tuesday morning. And they would just, you know, a managing director or your department head would just say, hey, by the way, you're, you're going to be working with the Cleveland Indians. Have fun. And, uh, you know, somebody might say to their colleague, and they would whisper it, they would not say it out loud, that they might whisper, I don't know anything about baseball. <laughs> or they, I think the more accurate would be, I don't know anything about basketball. And then their colleague would be like, Indians are a baseball team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. They're like, I don't know anything about this. I, I don't have interest in it. I might even have an objection. Like I might have a, a moral or professional and personal objection to this brand or business. So we wanted to bring that voting process to the team. And that, that's what we started with for the first seven years of the company. And then last year, we noticed that there were some common variables that were always discussed in a vote and in a briefing and in Q&A. And so we said, well, if we could turn this into a scorecard, you know, these 10 variables, and you answer yes or no, and yes, it's X amount of points, no, gets Y amount of points. Um, we could actually speed this whole process up so we don't have to brief the whole team on every single client, which that worked well in the beginning when maybe we'd get like a couple leads a month. You know, we average through, you know, referrals, inbound, um, our paid efforts, we probably average anywhere between five and 10 leads a week today. So I, I can't talk to the whole team about 10 leads every single week and brief them on every single one. Right. So we turned it into a scorecard and uh, we're testing it out. It'll probably take a year or longer to see if our scorecard is any good or not, because you have to put people through it. You have to bring them on board and then you have to see if they stay on board. But the scorecard just spits out a number. And between 70 and 100, it's just an automatic yes. And we tell the team, hey, based on the scorecard of all of your most important concerns, all the most important variables, they scored an automatic yes. So this is just an FYI, it's happening. Between, I think it's 50 and uh, 60 or 40 and 60, I forget the exact number on the numeric scale, we'll go back to our original process of briefing the team and having Q&A. And then anything under, I think, 40, it's just an automatic no. And what we've found, again, we've only been using the scorecard for a few months now. What we've found is that talking about, we've talked about feelings early. I can feel a client's not going to work. And then I put them through the scorecard. I actually did this yesterday. And it was numerically a com- like an immediate no. <laughs> right. Okay. And that, that, as an agency owner, felt good to basically have your gut balance. It was like, uh, there are some things I'm worried about here. I wonder if we can overcome them to work together and be productive as a group. And then I put them through the scorecard and I was like, Phew, they are, I mean, I think they scored like a 20. I think if you get your name right, you get 10 points on our scorecard. So it's a, that, that's a good one. But, uh, you know, it was one of the things where I was like, I, I feel my gut is totally validated. Yeah. But, you know, if you, if you were less mature in your, um, 
in your experience as an agency owner, your gut might not be as strong, right? Or you might be willing to overlook your gut for other factors like, um, you know, payrolls coming up at the end of the month or, you know, so it's good to have that metrics based verification or, or support for decisions that, um, that feel right in your gut. I mean, I, I do believe there are some occasions on which as an owner or an entrepreneur, something just doesn't sit well with you for whatever reason that, I mean, that's why you assume the risk of having your own business, right? So that you can override some of those other decisions, you, you know, and you own your own mistakes or own your own victories, whichever, but having the data that you develop and have it, having it vetted by so many of the team members and using it also to explain your decisions um, to them so that they understand the principles you're using and how you're loyal to them. I just, it's evidence of you're carrying through the same approach with your clients and with your team about how you're doing business. And so I, I love that. It makes the data feel a lot more human to me. And I, I wonder sometimes if that's why it's icky for lack of a more elegant word to agency owners in a very creative industry to have to spend so much time on those things because they feel, I don't know, sterile or not creative or not sexy or fun, which are some of the other reasons why they might be in the business in the first place. But these are, you know, decisions you have to make to determine whether or not you're going to be viable as a business. And you've created a way, I think, to make them feel a little more human. Yeah. And it's, you know, before Simon Sinek started talking nonstop about, you know, starting with why this whole TED talk, I think business owners didn't really have like a picture of why the why is important. And I, I can, you know, be a little bit vulnerable here and share something with you that Early in our company's lives, anytime we got pushback from employees, it was really difficult to hear. It felt like your whole existence was being questioned, whether yeah. it was bringing on a new client, making a hiring decision, the color of the tables in the office, like whatever. I mean, there was nothing too small or petty in right. that wouldn't hurt my feelings. And, and that, I think that's probably the best way to say it. It just hurts your feelings. It feels like you're being questioned. Right. And I learned that you're not, in most cases, there, there are certainly exceptions. And you, you know, being an attorney, I'm sure you see quite a few of these. <laughs> There's very few completely dysfunctional offices where people are truly doubting your decisions. They exist. I know a few in and outside of the agency world. But employees are generally asking for you to go into why because they care. And they don't know everything that you do. And you've got all this context in your brain that you haven't shared with them that's locked in your head. And all this information that is both safe to share with them or not safe to share with them. And so talking about why and having data to back it up for the company, I think it's just a really great way to meet them. Not even halfway, but like come all the way across the aisle and go talk to the employees. And be like, this is why we're making some decisions. And we first presented at one of our all-hands meetings the uh, the new client scorecard, the feedback, and I was I was kind of gearing up for a lot of questions around methodology. Well, why do you get five points for this and ten for that, and and like very tactical questions. Right. The the first thing that was said was it's about time. <laughs> really? Yeah. They're like, doesn't surprise me that we're having this discussion, and and I don't want this to come across the wrong way. But kind of thought that we would get here a while ago. <laughs> 
and we would have this scorecard as a tool to, to help the business. And I was like, huh, okay. Like of all the feedback, that was not the first thing I thought I was going to hear. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting that you just shared that because what I was thinking as you were being vulnerable was I was going to offer something. And this, I think, is probably one of my vulnerabilities as an entrepreneur. I, I totally took to heart what you just said about sometimes it really gets to your core when you are, first of all, you're sticking your neck out as an entrepreneur. You're assuming all the risk. The team members who work for you, the biggest risk they're assuming is you're not going to be able to keep them employed, right? Which is not insignificant by any stretch of the imagination, but they, they're not seeing all the, the micro decisions and macro decisions that go into um, your life day to day to make sure that that happens. And so, yes, it's it's very easy to to feel it personally when you get that kind of a pushback. One of my vulnerabilities was getting past that as best I can. Once I realized that I was shocked by how little time other people actually spend thinking about how you're going to feel about things. Yeah, and it's really true. They're so focused on their own. And it's it's just human nature. It's not malicious. It's not um, intentionally selfish. It's just we're hardwired uh, to just to be focused on our self-interests. And, and to the degree, I think that us as entrepreneurs or owners of the business, we're all worried about what, what they're thinking and why they're thinking it. And they're all mired in their own stuff. It's got nothing to do with us. And so I, I just think the those two things put together are huge learnings for actually any business owner. But in this industry in particular, your industry in particular, where a lot of creative people, um, a lot of sensitivity flying around on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I'll, I'll pass along some wisdom that was shared with me. When I worked in Seattle, I was at an agency by the name of Wong Duty. It's two people's names mashed together. Yeah. Yes. And Tracy Wong. Uh, brilliant, creative, hilarious guy. Uh, Tracy and Pat started that agency in the 80s. And Tracy used to say something that totally resonated with me. And I think about it a lot, right? Because he's in the, he is, he is the creative. Right. And so he was always pitching ideas, pitching concepts, pitching messages, pitching everything. And he always used to kind of calm people down before a big client pitch, whether it was, you know, a current piece of business or a brand new client you're trying to bring into the agency. And he would say, hey, listen up. And there'd be a couple F-bombs thrown in there that I won't repeat because that's just Tracy, if you know. Uh, <laughs> we've literally ever heard him speak in public. <laughs> <laughs> yep. and, uh, so, you know, F this, F that. We probably, on a good day, we're about to get in the car you know, drive over to the client's office. On a good day, we probably have control over 10% of how this is going to go. Right. And people would always be like, what are you talking about? And he would, you know, he said, okay, how about his traffic this morning? Is your, is your kid sick? Parents sick? Uh, have you, are you missing your spouse? Cause they are management consultant and they travel 24 seven. Like all of these things get brought, are going to get brought to the meeting. You have no control over them. So on a good day, you might have like uh, at this meeting, you might have 10% of their attention and 10% of control over what's going to happen on a normal day. It's probably closer to five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just relax. Go in there, talk about your stuff, pitch your concepts. They're probably going to shoot a bunch of them down. They're going to tell you they want to be brave, and then they're going to pick uh, French vanilla. Yeah. 
instead of, you know, lightning blue or whatever color you're trying to get them to go towards. And it's totally about them. It's not about you. It has nothing to do with you. And, and I'm, again, I, I said at the beginning of this show, I'm not the creative type. I'm, I'm ones and zeros and proud of it. But I, the same thing happens when you present data. You know, the, the equivalent for a data-focused agency or, or data-focused marketer of getting your lightning blue shot down is a client looking at a presentation and saying, where did these numbers come from? Tell me about that. Mm-hmm. Sales note, mm, I was just in a meeting with our VP of sales. You're showing two different numbers. That is like the equivalent of lightning blue getting shot down a hundred times. You're just like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 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 Potentially inaccurate data. And I'm now about to start an internal conflict over whose data is right. And that's something, you know, coming back to what you can or can't control, you can come in with the best of intentions, pull the data wrong, and then show it to somebody in the C-suite, and they're going to shoot you down. And it's going to be one of those awkward meetings. It's just going to suck until it ends. (laughs) (laughs) And if you go the opposite way, like last week, we had a client who said, your numbers aren't matching up. And we had pulled uh, one of their data sets into our business intelligence tool. And we said, well, actually, in the database it's in, it doesn't total everything up. So our, our BI tool did that for you. And they were like, huh, okay. And I could see the gears turning because now they were thinking, who do I need to go backtrack to and correct this data to? <laughs> right, right, right. right yeah. He's not at fault. I said something that was inaccurate. Again, best of intentions, but it happened. And people are making decisions based on this information. So I need help. You know, I need to figure out who did I tell and when did I tell them? It's like a, a chain of evidence almost. Like I got to go through this mental cattle. Chain of evidence. That's what blockchain is for, people. Yes, yes. <laughs> to tie one number to another. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, what you just said reminded me of, of something we talked about uh, earlier. And uh, uh, I guess I would love to spend one of our last few minutes talking about you have some interesting points of view on agency client relationships and the real reasons why agencies get hired and fired. And also the lies that you think that agencies tell themselves about why it happens. And what you just said about that conversation, it sort of made me think of you bringing that up earlier. And so let's talk about that for a minute. What's your what's your working theory about the reasons why agencies actually get hired versus maybe why they think they do? And what are the things that agencies should stop telling themselves about why they're really getting hired? Sure. And, and as loud as I have been about being analytical and ones and zeros, this is a totally qualitative, you know, me just pounding the pavement, talking to prospective clients, talking to current clients, talking to former clients. I, I really would love to turn this into a cohesive study or paper, but I'll let you coach me. You would. It's data. I know. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I'm sitting here talking about building presentations. Uh, I'll let you coach me through this. If you think I'm getting off track, just kind of nudge me in the right direction. So there's a couple. Here's my working theory. Agencies get hired for two reasons. It's either expertise or time. And I don't mean time that you bill. I mean the client does not have time to do whatever you're being hired to do. They get hired for those two reasons because well, on the time front, what I found in my, re- in my 
research is uh, for larger companies, they usually have set headcounts that they can add to their, to their uh, department or organization. So they might have the money to go hire a full-time equivalent employee, stick them in an office, give them a computer and say, do this job. But they might not have the headcount for it. And that's incredibly frustrating for clients. I've seen clients who have actually told me um, as prospects, they said, to be honest, don't really want to hire you or anybody. Mm-hmm. Here's what I want to do, but I can't do it. <laughs> right, right, right. The other thing that I heard actually a lot last year, right? We're in a tight labor market. It's tough to, to convince people that your company is where they should spend 40 plus hours a week away from their family and other you know, fun stuff that they do. The other part is experience or expertise. I talked to multiple prospects last year who almost used the exact same language. It was like they were talking to one another, even though I knew they weren't. They didn't know each other. And they said, we actually have interviewed quite a few people to come work here full-time. Haven't found anybody that we really thought would excel on this job. And the end of that sentence tends to change. Either it would excel on this job, who we think we want to hire, who we were impressed with. Basically, they can't find anyone. It's a tight market. And so we, as I'm saying the collective we, if you are at an agency, I'm speaking to you now, Mm -hmm. we show up with a stable of talent. So it's like, hey, all that painful HR stuff that you're frustrated about, and you've got these open, physical open seats in your office that you're staring at every day, they're just mocking you, right? They're looking at you. They're the, I dare you to film me. You can't find anybody. We show up with a stable of talent and we say, hey, meet some of our people. If you like them, hire us. But we're going to bring you, you know, talent to the trough, so to speak, as opposed to you having to fight the labor market here. So like I said, it usually comes down to time or expertise. The other thing that I've seen outside of that, of why agencies might get hired is, say you do have the headcount. So we're, uh, let's talk about Dell, the computer company. Dell has headcount. They hire a senior content strategist. Great. Who does she re- report to? What is her dotted and solid line within the organization? Is there anybody focused on her development? Because again, coming back to the tight labor market comment, and I, I think unemployment is, you know, hovering somewhere between three and five percent. It's usually a four-ish range um, when I check. If you hire this person and she has no path to getting getting better, getting promoted, learning things, being supported internally, within a tight labor market, that's not an attractive job to accept. And she might accept it. She might say, "Eh, the pay is good. Looks like easy work." It's actually a short commute. It's like a five-minute drive from my house. I'll go work here for a little bit. More often than not, what I'm seeing from the talent side, the employees who are bringing their talents um, to the table, is they're just saying, listen, if if there isn't a plan for me, uh, that's not really attractive. I'm kind of like this kite that at any moment, the string could get cut by a pair of scissors. And nobody's really focused on where I'm flying or how fast I'm going or how high I'm flying. That's really not attractive. And so those are what I'm... Those are some of the things that I'm starting to see. And I would end with a question that Andre, our sales guy, um, and I tend to ask a lot of prospects. We tend to ask, why are you hiring an agency? Because I truly want to know, why don't you hire this in-house? Why don't you hire a single 1099 contractor, right? Because there's so much work here that a single person couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And if you say yes to the agency, then it's, uh, you know, why, why would you hire the agency? Like, why, why do you want our organizations to collide and work together for the next 12 plus months? 
And those are, and I probably should have started my answer with that. Those are, that's where you start to get the answers around time, experience, development of employees. Uh, if you're going to hire them full-time in-house at Dell or wherever you are. And uh, those are those are the trends that I'm seeing a lot of. And, and the most, I don't want to call it alarming, but the most intriguing trend is people can't find who they want. And so they're just deciding to hire nobody. It's almost that the decision uh, is so complex, they can't see what they want. And so they just make no decision at all. Right. Yeah. A paradox yeah. of choice. Right, right, right. Well, I think if anyone can develop the data to either flush out that theory or or lead you to a different conclusion, it's it's you and your team at MKG, right? I'd love to say so. <laughs> yeah. So I would love to see that. If you ever do that study, let me know because I'd love to have you back and I'd love to talk about it. I think it'd be fascinating for the agency folks listening to this to, to learn more about the real reasons because any data you can gather to help you understand better whether or not you have a shot, um, especially in new business situations, um, is helpful and takes friction out of the process. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. This has been a fascinating conversation. I am I am not personally a data girl um, because I think if I had been, I probably would have chosen a different career path in my life. But I know how just increasingly important it is in the life of a marketer and of an agency that supports marketing. And so it's been fascinating to get the take of the owner of a data-focused agency who just puts it right out there from the time you um, bring a new client on um, until the time you're ready to renew or not with them. And so I really appreciate you sharing your perspective um, today, Mike. This has been a really interesting conversation. I learned a lot and I really enjoyed it. So I want to thank you for being a guest on the podcast. And I also want to give the agency leaders and owners who are listening today an opportunity to learn more about uh, the work that MKG does. So where's, where are the best places that they can reach you um, or the agency? Yeah, I'd start with our website. Uh, the short vanity URL is MKG period marketing. If you type that into uh, your URL bar in your browser, you'll go straight to our website. And then we own all of our social handles by name. So it's MKG Marketing INC, like Charlie. And if you look us up on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram, Instagram's new for us. So make sure to like all of our posts. That we're much appreciated. And, and we're always happy to talk to other agency owners. I'm, I'm actually personally part of a few, um, I guess you call them like think tank groups, you know, fellow agency owners spread across North America in the US and Canada. Um, and we're always talking about you know, financial metrics, other questions that are coming up. And so I, I welcome anybody who wants to, to learn and also to share experience. Really encourage you, you know, get in touch with me. Let's talk. I'd love to share experiences and learn from one another. And I, it's not a competitive thing at all. It's just two business owners trying to, uh, trying to navigate the world of building a strong, healthy agency. I love it. I love it. Well, Mike, thank you so much for uh, sharing your time and your story today. Really appreciate it. And I will talk with the rest of you on the next episode of the Innovative Agency. Thanks for joining us, everyone. 
We really hope you enjoyed this episode in the hashtag agency series from the Innovative Agency. To hear more episodes along these lines, check out the Innovative Agency in Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcast player, or the links right in the show notes for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. One of the things we've learned about podcast audience growth is that word of mouth works. It works really, really well, actually. So if you love this show, it would be awesome if you texted a friend to tell them about it. And if you send me a text with a screenshot of the text you sent to your friend, Meta, I know, I'll send you a copy of my book, Content-Based Networking, How to Instantly Connect with Anyone You Want to Know. My cell phone number is 407-490-3328. Happy texting. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.